Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 209 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Pivoting in Life and Lime, an interview with Marta Edmiston. My name is Megan Bradshaw. And I'm Richard Johannesson. Rich, I'm so excited for this episode to be here as your guest co-host in lieu of Matt, but also to be able to help share the story of a dear friend in the Lyme community, Marta Edmiston. Just a few weeks ago in August, I had the opportunity to speak at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Tick-Borne Disease Working Group meeting, providing public commentary on my story as a patient. And just after I spoke, I heard Marta begin to tell her story, and immediately I knew that this was someone I needed to connect with. We had so many similarities in our Lyme journeys, and I knew that I wanted to do whatever I could to help elevate her story because it resonated with me, and I know it would resonate with so many other patients. Megan, I can't thank you enough for serving as my co-host on this episode. The way that you and Marta related to one another was really powerful and quite frankly, was really beautiful. And I really enjoyed the way that Marta's life progressed where she would run into a problem and pivot around that problem or run into another problem and pivot around that problem. And she's done that all through her Lyme journey. And we've seen that as a necessary element to people healing, that is pivoting. So we decided to name this episode pivoting in life and Lyme to share with our listeners what the spirit of this podcast was about. In this episode, Marta opens up to us about her self-proclaimed stubborn personality, which really served her well in continuing to be an advocate for herself in her lifelong search for an accurate diagnosis. So I'm so excited to introduce Marta to the community. Without further ado, Marta Edmiston. Hey, Marta, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. And it's particularly nice for me to see you because of my special co-host. Today, we are actually doing a podcast without Matt Sabatello, and we're doing it with one of my favorite people in the world, Megan Bradshaw. Megan, say hi to our folks. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys so much for having me again. Uh, we are so excited to have you, Megan. This is just going to be the best podcast ever. It's so, <laughs> Marta, tell our folks uh, where you're calling in from. I am calling in from Charles Village, which is a neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland. So you're kind of an East Coast gal. Uh, I mean, is, is Maryland on the East Coast? I'm, yes, it is. And I'm a completely East Coast gal. Um, I was born in Washington, D.C. I then lived in North Carolina um, and then back in Washington, D.C. And I lived there until I graduated from high school. Um, and then I went to college in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I lived in Boston, Massachusetts, also on the East Coast. And then I have been a New Yorker for a very long time. So I have a lot in common with you. Holy um, cow. So I lived in Brooklyn, New York for, I believe, 22 years. I am very new to Maryland. Wow. You don't look like you're 22 years old. So holy cow, you preserved yourself well. But I guess that's the... Great Why, living on you. East Coast. <laughs> so, Marta, let's 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 talk about uh, the downside to living on the East Coast, right? The upside is it's uh, it's a beautiful place to live, and we have some beautiful cultural centers. And it sounds like you've lived in most of the uh, beautiful cultural centers that we have here on the East Coast. But there is a downside to living on the East Coast, and that is we are the Lime Belt, right? We have uh, Lime up and down the entire East Coast, and. Uh, before we get further into your journey, I'd like you to talk to me about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood. Uh, during my childhood, I knew absolutely nothing. Um, 
However, by the time I was 15, possibly 16, I started uh, working for a family who had three children and two of their children had very serious cases of Lyme disease that um, progressed for, you know, at least a year and a half each. And my, my role in their family, other than being a quasi part of their family was that after school every day, I would go and help the two children who were the most affected to try to get through the schoolwork that was being sent home every day for them. They were both bed bound. Um, so I learned very, very quickly that this was a very, very dangerous disease. Um, but this would have been, I should preface this, this would have been in the 90s, the very early 90s, possibly, yeah, maybe 1989, 90. And um, so I would have been 15, 16. And I really thought that they'd been very unlucky. Um, they had a, uh, a weekend house that was in West Virginia. And, you know, it, in my being like everybody else in the world with a very limited knowledge of Lyme disease, you know, I thought, oh, well, they're playing in the woods. You know, it won't happen to me. Um, but I, I, I became aware very quickly of how difficult the treatment was how debilitating the symptoms were, um, and also the psychiatric and psychological implications of Lyme disease. Um, one of these children, the younger of the two that were affected, uh, really struggled very, very hard with um, the kind of depression that I, it is beyond just the difficulties of being sick. It was very clear to me that there was something physically in his brain happening that was making this situation even more difficult than the, you know, the, the other situation, what was literally around him, you know, how it was to live in his body in all of that pain. Um, so beyond the fact that he couldn't do the things that the other kids were doing and he couldn't go to school and, he couldn't, you know, read more than a paragraph at a time. Um, it was clear to me that something else was going on. Um, so, Marta, it's it's interesting that you were you were aware of Lyme disease from young people who were suffering from the chronic form of Lyme disease mm -hmm. at a time when very few people had the capacity to have that disease diagnosed, and certainly. Uh, very few people had the ability to treat that disease. So talk to us about what the 15 and 16 year old Marta was learning about Lyme disease, meaning um, what type of diagnostic tools were used to diagnose these children and what kind of treatment protocols were being used to treat them when they were dealing with these debilitating symptoms. Honestly, I, I learned none of that. Um, their parents were, you know, amazingly proactive and, and, amazingly educated for the time period. Um, all that I understood was that this, you know, these two children definitely had this disease. I knew that it was bacterial. Um, I knew that they had diseases other than, you know, what, what I was being told was Lyme disease. I was being told that there were other factors. Um, and I knew that antibiotics were being used and it was very clear to me when a new antibiotic would be introduced because 
there would be no, my work was, was very different on those weeks, on those days. That was more sitting next to the child in bed and just holding his hand. So that was really the extent of my understanding. And in my mind, it was still this very rare, very nebulous, very horrible, horrible thing, but nothing that really impacted me, honestly. Well, let's and, talk about that. Um, so let's talk about impacting you. So are you saying that it didn't impact you in a way that led you to believe that you should be taking steps to protect yourself or, or were you, or was it impacting you or not impacting you in a different way? No, no, I definitely, the, the first part of your statement, it, it very much impacted me. I, I cared very deeply for this family and these children, um, but it did not, it did not change my thinking that I should suddenly start putting repellent on when I, you know, took their dog for a walk. It, no, none of that. None of the prevention things that I now know occurred to me. Well, no. the, at that time, did you know how they got sick and did you know that there were steps that they could have taken to protect themselves? Or was this just some... You it know, was some... bad luck in my mind. They had had very bad luck and that they had been in the woods. Okay. That was my level of thinking. Right. I did not understand ticks are everywhere. I did not understand any of it. Any of it. Did you at that time know that it was a disease that they contracted as a result of coming in contact with the tick vector? Yes. Okay. So they were just, they were unlucky enough to come in contact with these bugs and they got very, very sick and they were managing this illness with these proactive parents. And sort of that's the imprint that you had on your, on your, uh, on your brain. And you really didn't think that you needed to take any steps to protect yourself because they were just the unlucky two. And you didn't expect that that was going to be something that would impact your life. Exactly. I wasn't going to go to West Virginia. So now let's talk about your educational experience. So where, where did you get your first, your elementary education? Um, I went to a small Episcopalian school, a private school um, from kindergarten to sixth grade. And um, after that, I finished middle school and high school in Montgomery County, Maryland um, at a public school. Um, my mother lived in DC, but we found out that if you paid a certain amount of money that you could go to these really killer schools in Montgomery County for a very low price. And uh, private school was not really in the budget at all. So I, I ended up having a very good experience um, in, in public school in Maryland. Okay, so you, so you went to you went to a parochial school initially, uh, and then to these killer public schools. And I'm assuming you, had, you were taking both health courses and science courses. And um, in any of the courses that you were taking, either at your private uh, parochial school or at your killer uh, public school, did you learn anything about ticks or tick diseases or anything about vectors you should be protecting yourself from? Absolutely not. <laughs> now, let's talk about this window of time where you're now 15 or 16, you you come in contact with some folks who need some help and you start to work for them. How did you, how did you get the job where you're helping the family of the children who were suffering from Lyme disease? They were family friends and um, they reached out to my mother and asked if I 
wanted to help them. Part of the reason is that um, Spanish is my first language and uh, one of the subjects that one of the children was having the most trouble with was Spanish. So that was one of the reasons. Um, I'm not sure what the other reasons were, but I just got lucky. It, it kind of became an adoptive family for me. So now when, you, when you were working with these folks and you were, and you were having your educational experience at your killer public schools, uh, was there any crossover between what you were observing with these sick, children that you were interacting with and what you were learning in school, either in your science classes or your, or your health classes? I wish I could say yes, but no, there wasn't. So talk to us about what your vision was for your future. Meaning when you were, you were this young person um, who was going to school in Maryland, what did you envision yourself doing? Um, I had two dreams and, and interestingly they have persisted. Um, until now. Um, one was to be a fine artist and uh, the other one was to go into mental health. Um, so when I was in high school, my focuses were very much those two things. Um, I was spending probably 50% of my time working in my dark room at home, taking photographs, um, taking sculpture classes, uh, really I, I, I was struggling a lot in high school. So those things were um, ways that I coped um, and also just things that filled my, my heart in a good way. Um, and I was always fascinated with psychology and always wanted to go into a helping profession of some sort. Um, so when I was applying for colleges, I think I applied to eight schools for, um, you know, with the intent of becoming a psychologist. And I applied for one REACH school and it was um, a very big REACH school for me. And that was the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and I never imagined I would get into that school. Um, and I did. And when Congratulations. I, did, I turned down the scholarship to Cornell, I turned down a whole lot of things because for me, that was the pinnacle. Like it, it, it didn't get me better than that. And no regrets, no regrets at all. Um, yeah. So talk to us about um, when your health challenges began to surface and how they were impacting your capacity to pursue your dreams to become a fine artist and a mental health professional. Um, I have to say that um, those health challenges started around the age of seven. Um, in, you know, 2020 hindsight, um, and, and I, I honestly have only really realized this since um, my understanding my health challenges fully, um, I had a very good reason to be having all of the problems I had as a child uh, at age seven. I started having very serious endocrine problems. Um, I was followed by the head of the endocrinology department at Children's Hospital for 14 months. Um, no cause was ever found. Um, the other very strange thing that happened at a very young age is that I had tested at all the highest levels for, um, you know, reading, math, all of those things that they test you for in kindergarten to make sure that you don't 
have learning disabilities and my reading level was kind of off the charts. Everything was in great place to have a, a wonderful academic career. Um, and I guess around age seven, also maybe eight, um, I developed very severe tension problems. Um, I also started noticing that uh, as I would look at a piece of paper and, and remember I am 47. So in elementary school, everything was on a piece of paper as was high school. Um, <laughs> letters, uh, letters began to move on the page as I looked at them. Um, once I got to middle school and Scantron, I don't, Megan won't even know what that is. I sure do. Okay, sorry. I sure um, do. <laughs> Scantron, anyway, Scantron was my nemesis. Um, between the rows of things and the letters and the numbers, um, it became very clear that uh, my, something between my eyes and my brain were not syncing together and were not processing those things correctly. Um, at the same time, I come from a family where um, overachieving is considered the minimum you do. And um, not getting straight A's is not acceptable. Um, so I, I became a very neurotic child um, who would recheck their homework 10 times. I became a child who uh, became very stressed out about every spelling test, about every, every possible way that I would be tested. Um, if it was something I could write at home and bring in, that was not a problem. But if there was a time constraint and letters, numbers, all those things that we use in everyday life all the time were involved, there was a problem. Um, so Marla, let's pause there for a second. Yep. Um, prior to your symptoms developing around the age of seven years old, do you recall having been bitten by a tick? Yes. <laughs> I did not recall it until uh, about five and a half years ago. Um, but I was having a, a consult with my mother present and we both remembered her pulling a tick off behind my earlobe, um, my right earlobe. Uh, when I was six years old. And um, I remember her dropping it into the, it was a Robitussin bottle cap that you measure the medicine in and she'd put rubbing alcohol in it and the whole thing turned red. Um, so that is that is very much in my memory. Um, and it's not as if either one of us forgot it. We just didn't think anything of it. It was 1980, big deal. <laughs> Now, were there any other times in your life that you recall having been bitten by a tick where you found a tick on you or someone in your family found a tick on you? Uh, no, there's not another time when somebody found a tick on me. However, um, in my first semester uh, in college in Providence, Rhode Island, I woke up to a huge bullseye rash on my neck uh, and that persisted for several weeks. I went to health services and they told me it was probably a spider bite and not to worry about it. And I didn't worry about it. So. Okay. So now talk to us about how your symptoms during your childhood were interfering with your educational experience and interfering with your capacity to pursue your dreams to become an artist and a mental health professional. Um, it was, uh, you know, the learning, the learning issues and the reading issues were, were definitely problematic, but what was much more problematic, 
um, was the level of psychiatric manifestations that I was dealing with at, from a very young age. Um, depersonalization, uh, suicidal ideation, depression. Um, eventually, I, I would say maybe by the age of 11, maybe a little bit later, um, I, I think it would have been a magical day that I got more than three hours of sleep. My, um, the insomnia that I dealt with was just epic. Um, beyond anything I think that I dealt with as an adult even. Um, uh, I also suddenly developed social anxiety. Um, so all of, the, all of these important things that you need to have to make friends and, and feel comfortable in your own skin and uh, grow as a person were, were lacking. Um, and I struggled very, very hard. Um, I sought out, it, it got so bad that at the age of 16, I saw, I, I told my mother I needed psychiatric help. Um, and I'd been hiding it fairly well. Um, I, I also dealt with eating disorders. Um, it, I, I now see that it's all tied in together. I, I now understand it all, but at this, at the time, it just seemed so out of left field. Um, so I did start seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, he was a specialist in adolescent, uh, psychiatry and, uh, prescribed several SSRIs, nothing helped. Um, every day really started to become a nightmare. Um, I would say easily by the time I was 13 or 14. Um, crying jags I couldn't hide from people or, or simply feeling empty, completely empty. Uh, and I'm sure the lack of sleep was not helping me at all. Now, Marta, when you were on this stage of your journey, you were now also working, at least for a portion of this journey, with people who were diagnosed with Lyme disease and had classic Lyme disease symptoms, as had you. Everything you've described is classic Lyme. At the time, did you perceive yourself as having similar symptoms to the people that you were working with who were diagnosed with Lyme disease? I did not. In fact, I, I will be, this will sound like a strange thing to say, but I, I don't know if everybody who is battling mental health issues feels this way or not, but I felt like my condition, psychiatrically speaking, was far worse than what I was seeing uh, with these family members um, that I was working for. Um, I really... Uh, I knew there was something very terribly wrong with me. I knew that I was not always experiencing reality. Um, I, I won't go so far as to say at that point that I was dealing with any psychosis, um, but there, there was a definite, uh, there was too much space between understanding what was definitely real and what was definitely not real. There was too much of wiggle room there. And, and when you were dealing with these mental health issues that you were dealing with during your childhood, did you believe that there was a physiological basis for it? Or were you unable to believe that there was some connection between physiology and perhaps a disease and the mental health manifestations? No, I just thought I was very messed up. 
Now let's talk about the depersonalization. Uh, we interviewed uh, a wonderful young woman a couple of weeks ago uh, named Margot Gunning. And she talked to us about depersonalization and how it essentially created this separation between her mind and this body that she was dragging around. Now, did you have a similar experience with your depersonalization? And do you believe that played a role in your inability to see the parallels between these children that you were working with and your Lyme disease journey? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's, you know, it, it's something that I felt later on in life as well, thankfully no longer, but um, I think her description is perfect. It really is you and then this, the rest of this physical form that, that just happens to be attached to you somehow, but it doesn't feel like one. And because it doesn't feel like one, because there's a separation between your mind and your body, then of course, it's hard to make a connection between what's happening in your mind or in your brain and that being connected to your body because you have this separation. So this depersonalization is much more debilitating and a much more powerful force than I think I certainly understood until I had the description from Margot. Uh, because we've had many people describe the experience of depersonalization, but in a very different way. And I didn't appreciate until just now how powerfully that could, what a powerful role it could play in your inability to see the parallels between what you were working with, these diagnosed people and the illness that you were suffering from. It definitely played a part. So let's talk about uh, your college experience, right? So uh, clearly, um, you are a gifted person intellectually, despite having all of these mental health issues and all of these, these other health issues. You were, you were accepted into an Ivy League school, Cornell University. By the way, uh, my wife and mother-in-law uh, both graduated from Cornell, and they will be very upset when I tell them that uh, you rejected their alma mater. Uh, but you, you, you rejected uh, an opportunity to go to an Ivy League school, which is a very unique opportunity. So talk to us about how you were able to get into so many good schools, despite having all the challenges that you were facing during this uh, time of your life. It was all I did. All I did with my time was read and reread and re-reread everything. Um, the, the kinds of things that would happen if I did not do that is that I would, I would show up to class and I was in all of these advanced placement classes. And even if a professor, I, sorry, I guess a teacher in high school, even if a teacher asked me to read a particular paragraph or discuss something from AP European history and I was put on the spot. If I didn't have that almost memorized, that would have been a humiliating experience for me. Um, I will add that, that the dyslexia, the attention deficit disorder, nothing, none of it was diagnosed until I took the SATs, which was when I was 17. So I'm in all of these AP classes, AP Spanish, AP history, like anything not science or math, I'm in the AP for, and nothing was noticed at all until I took the SATs and I got a whopping 400, you get 200 for your name. Um, and it, it took about 10 minutes for my guidance counselor to look at the Scantron and see what had happened. Um, 
so I would say it was just sheer will. And it, it also in some ways kept me probably from harming myself more to have this focus because I think partially in my mind, I thought once I get to college, everything will be better. Once I have independence, everything will be better. It was kind of that very Western thinking we all have that like the next big thing is going to be like the great thing. And so I just wanted to get out of high school and go somewhere good and get out of Dodge, um, have some fun. So I think all of those, all of those aspects are how I did it. And then what was also expected of me. Well, let's talk about this window of time and the impact that your illness was having on your hyper-focus, because it sounds to me like you became a hyper-focused young person and you were really diligent about your work, which allowed you to perhaps have a level of success academically that you may not have had, had you not had to overcome the challenges that your, your disease was presenting to you. Um, that is one, one very positive way of looking at it. And I, I have also looked at it that way as well. Um, there are superpowers with every single adversity that you deal with. Um, you discover, you just have to figure out what they are. Um, and so that, that definitely was a positive that I, I did have that gumption and I did, I did have that will to like prove everybody wrong. And it wasn't that anybody was saying I wasn't smart and it wasn't that anybody was saying you can't read well because they didn't know, but I sure as heck was not going to let them find out. And that was another part of it. I'm stubborn. I'm really stubborn. Like if I get an idea in my head, it's not going to go away. So it's also a personality trait. <laughs> well, it is. And, and it's a superpower. And it's a superpower that you discovered at a very early age because you had to discover that superpower, right? Right. So let's talk about your college experience. What was your college experience like? Some of the best four years of my life. It was wonderful to be surrounded by all of these people that were so passionate about art and concepts and expressing those concepts in beautiful ways or ugly ways. But just, I, I feel that art is about communication. Art is about protest. Art is about education. Art is about beauty. I, I feel that art kind of can encompass everything, everything in life. And being around all of these people that had fought just as hard as I had to get into the school that was like impossible to get into and people that, you know, all of us, it was funny because uh, Rhode Island School of Design is literally a block away from the Brown University campus, which is, you know, another Ivy League school. And you know, there's always the stereotype that our art school students are, you know, the wild and crazy ones doing all the drugs and, you know, we're having the crazy orgies and the parties. Nothing could have been further from the truth. That was the kids at Brown. We were all in studio working until 1 a.m., 2 a.m. We were working all weekend because it was a passion, because it was like we were we were doing it out of love we were not doing it to get to the next graduate level school. We were not, 
like we were doing this because we were all in and to be surrounded with people that are all in there's nothing more inspiring than that ever and I love working with my hands and I was a printmaking major and um there's something about working with my hands and and it's part of what got me through high school was you know playing with clay, uh, you know, making sculpture or even doing photography, even that like motor control of, of using a camera. Um, there's something about that that I think for many other people, not just me, transports you out of this um, ridiculous thinking that we humans do. We're always worrying about the future or the past or not the now. And when I'm working with my hands or if I'm focused on, you know, an art project of any kind, like I'm free. I'm present. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, it, was good. <laughs> let's it, it sounds like it was an awesome experience. And, uh, and, but I want to, I want to develop that a little bit with you now. So uh, talk to us about what was going on with your health during that window of time when you were in, in college and how your health was impacting your capacity to be present, your capacity to be all in, and your capacity to have the types of social relationships that you would want to have in the environment that you were in? Um, my, my health struggles very much impeded a lot of those areas. And in fact, probably all of those areas. Um, while I was in a much better um, physical situation and, and around people that I, I felt much more in tune with than I ever had before. Um, my mental health continued to decline, uh, particularly after I got that bullseye rash. Um, and pause there. We, we, we're going to come back to that again, but just okay. give, give us the overview first, but I, I, yep. I promise you, I've not forgotten about that bullseye rash. <laughs> um, so, so that was an issue. And then I, I also started developing tremors um, in my hands in particular. And those tremors made the work that I wanted to do nearly impossible. Um, so I ended up having to switch gears and do photography-based printmaking. Um, again, we, we always have to pivot in life, right? Um, so while I had wanted to to be the kind of printmaker that did etchings, that that's using a very fine point tool. And if you mess up the zinc plate, you know, it's kind of trashed. Um, but I learned to pivot. Um, but it, my health challenges really were an issue. Um, I had a lot of joint pain. Um, working with printing presses is a very physical thing to do. Um, even if you're working with the fancy pneumatic ones, like it's still a pretty physical job. Um, lift, lifting lithography stones uh, takes a lot of strength. And I noticed that those, um, those were becoming more and more challenging for me, those, those tasks. Um, I was also working for the department as, as part of my financial aid um, award uh, and that was becoming problematic as well. I was having trouble. Um, part of my job was stocking all of the inks and um, I was having trouble doing them in order. And I was, my brain was just not quite working. So. So yeah. now let's talk about the bullseye rash, right? So you have what you now know to be a reinfection. 
right? You, you, you discover this rash and you go to get the rash treated at the student center and you're not diagnosed with Lyme disease. You're told it's a spider bite, go on with your life. I think they gave me some cream. <laughs> and it probably had steroid in it, which would make you even more likely to suffer chronic illness. And then there's a, there was something that I had forgotten to put in the questionnaire. I, I was hit, uh, I was bicycling and I was hit. Um, I was doored actually. I wasn't hit by anyone, but I was doored. And I landed what does on that mean? me. I'm sorry. What, what does doored mean? Uh, it's when you're biking by a car and somebody doesn't look out their side view mirror and they open their door and you fly right over. Um, so that happened to me, uh, I believe the summer after my sophomore year in college. And there were a, there was surgery and there was there were a lot of steroids involved. Quite a lot of steroids involved. Okay. And things, things, things became more difficult after that. I want to deconstruct these two events separately. So let's mm -hmm. first talk about the bullseye rash and how your symptoms changed after that reinfection. Let's focus on that first. Uh, several months later, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So your, so your, your mental health issues became more extreme and that all was triggered by this reinfection. Yes. I know that now. Okay. I did uh, not know that then. Now, I, I, I want you to now go back to the window of time between when you were seven, when you, well, I guess when you were six, when you were first bitten, and now this time when you were a freshman in college, how many different doctors did you see between the ages of six and the ages of, I guess that would be about 20? endocrinologists, allergists, rheumatologists, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, um, physiatrist. Uh, and then through college, there were surgeons and more psychiatrists and nurses and Okay. Now, were you given a diagnosis um, with any uh, with any type of certainty for any kind of illness between the time that you were, you were six and the time that you were 20 years old? Yes, bipolar disorder. Other than bipolar disorder, were you diagnosed with anything else? No. Okay. So now let's, let's move forward to the Doring event. I've never heard that term before. Uh, so it's uh, another growth opportunity for me. Um, you now have this immune disrupting event where you are physically injured and you undergo a surgical procedure. And that also includes, from what you just shared with us, immune disrupting medications, i.e. steroids. How did things change for your developing symptoms after you had that um, personal injury experience? Psychosis. That's, that's the one thing that stands out. Um, that, that was when that first emerged. Um, so, so your mental health time, challenges. It, it, it was uh, terrifying. Um, and I would say that um, I'm, for all the listeners, I'm putting in air quotes, the bipolar disorder also became much worse on its own aside from just this brand new lovely psychosis. 
So now for the mental health diagnosis that you received first uh, between the ages of six and 20, and then between the ages of 20, I guess, and 21 or 22, where, where you had the personal injury incident, were you given any medications for any of these mental health diagnoses that you had received? Oh, yes. Yes. I was prescribed uh, various forms of lithium. Um, and in, in high school, I was prescribed SSRIs. Um, I was prescribed Wellbutrin. Um, I was prescribed antipsychotics of various sorts. Um, and the lithium was the most difficult to tolerate of everything. Now, were you given all of these different medications because the prior medication you were using was not working? So they were trying something else or were there other symptoms that were developing that they were giving these medications for? Um, my understanding was that um, the psychiatrist I was working with felt that my symptoms were worsening. Not so much necessarily that what I had been given before wasn't working, but that it wasn't enough and that now we needed to pack on more things. Now, did you find that any of the medications you were being given were benefiting you? No, no, but I am a very compliant type A person and I took them anyway and I hoped, I really truly hoped that each new medication would maybe give me that relief. So now let's fast forward to your date of diagnosis. Uh, when were you diagnosed with Lyme disease? I was diagnosed with Lyme disease in February of 2016. And how old were you at that time? 41. So, and Megan is going to take you on your, on the rest of your diagnostic journey, but I do want to talk to you about what your life was like between the ages of 20 and 41 meaning the time that you had got your, gotten your diagnosis. Uh, what kind of work were you doing? What kind of life were you having? And how were your symptoms developing in that 20-year window? Uh, as far as work, um, the first two years out of college, uh, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts. I worked in the food service industry. I was also a practicing artist. I had a studio. Um, afterwards, I moved to New York City. Uh, which had always been my plan and um, also had a studio usually out of my home. Um, primarily I initially worked in kind of what I call the art industry. Um, it depended on what was available but um, in the beginning I worked for art storage companies. I did art installation. Um, as I was I, I was also an artist assistant for a time for an artist. Um, actually several years. Uh, and then I was kind of introduced into the world of art handling, which was really exciting for me um, because I never saw, I never saw the way I made money as my career. My career was being an artist and making money. It was a bonus if I could make money doing something that had anything to do with art. Um, so then I started to become an art handler. I would uh, work at the Museum of Modern Art for three or four months, uh, the Museum of Folk Art. Um, I, I can't even remember all the different museums I worked in. Um, my longest job in what I would call the art industry is um, 
I worked for the New York Public Library, um, the kind of iconic location with the big lions. Uh, they have many exhibition halls and I worked in several different positions in that institution, um, culminating with being a master framer, um, which was just like the perfect job for me in the world. Um, I, I got to physically handle these amazing Japanese, you know, rice paper prints. I, I, I got to handle, you know, books that you can't put a value on. I got to, I got to do these amazing things. And it was, um, it was a very big privilege. So Marta, how were your developing symptoms impacting your ability to perform all the functions that you were performing in these various positions that you were holding? Um, very much so. Uh, between, um, I was still, I was still fighting. My mental health had never improved. It, it wasn't improving. I was just trying more and more and more drugs. Um, that was also the time period when I started, unfortunately, having inpatient stays. Um, for my mental health conditions. Um, and then on top of that, between, I, it's hard for me to parse out what was necessarily the psychiatric drugs that I was being given, what were the side effects and what were the manifestations of, you know, my illness. It's hard to know, but my tremors got a lot worse. Um, they would sometimes be so bad I would have to call in sick to work because I, I'm certainly not the person that's going to ruin a, a book that only one of exists in the world. Um, it was also very embarrassing. Um, it's hard to explain these things. Um, I also started getting these electric shot, like shooting pains in my limbs. And so, you know, if I were to be doing art installation at a certain point in time, and it was a really bad day, I, I couldn't do it. That was not a possibility for me. Um, and so because of all these things, and there was also an assumption um, made that was incredibly hurtful um, when I was working at the New York Public Library that I was um, abusing narcotics and that that was the explanation for my tremor and for all, all of these, the, the person in HR pointed out quite a few things that maybe I wasn't even aware of, a facial tick that I wasn't aware of. Um, I ended up starting my own company. Um, so another pivot that we all kind of have to learn to make as we grow up in life, you have to pivot. And I thought it was a temporary pivot. I thought, hey, um, I love to clean houses and I see that people need house cleaners in my neighborhood and maybe I'll do this for six months and maybe my tremors will go away and I can go back to doing what I love. And that didn't happen, but I ended up, I ended up forming a really pretty awesome uh, house cleaning company in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I actually formulated my own natural products um, Plain Jane's Brooklyn, shout out, um, doesn't exist anymore, but it may again. Um, and I, I made, produced, sold, um, non-toxic cleaning products. I sold them over the internet. I sold them to my clients. I sold them in a whole lot of kind of green boutiques in Brooklyn, New York, and even sold them in three, uh, Whole Foods locations. 
And so that was another pivot I made. And I'd also noticed as, as time went on that I became very, very sensitive to anything chemical, very sensitive. And so making these products actually came out of a need. Um, I was, there were very few natural products on the market at the time. There was like seventh generation, maybe Ecos, and that was it. And you had to go to a co-op to buy them. This was the 2000s, you know, um, and they didn't work very well. And I needed things that would work, but there was no way that I was going to use anything with bleach, ammonia, or anything toxic in it because it just made me so sick. And that was a new thing too. Um, but I ended up formulating these great products and that was a, it ended up being a wonderful pivot. Now, during this window of your life, um, were you treating with doctors and were the doctors giving you any diagnosis? And I'd specifically like you to talk to us about the um, thorough evaluation that you would go through when you had your stays at the hospital. Uh, when, we, when we interviewed Ali Hilfiger, she said that her time at the hospital was actually the blessing, uh, was a blessing, because although she didn't want to be institutionalized for any window of time, she finally got the type of thorough um, evaluation and medical evaluation that she needed. And that's when somebody gave her a diagnosis of Lyme disease. So talk to us about how thorough you were evaluated medically when you had your, your hospital stays and tell us why you think maybe you were not given an opportunity to finally receive your diagnosis the way Allie Hilfiger was. I was never, I was never given a physical at any of my hospital stays. I never met with an outside consult. I not, I, I, I'm sorry that I was kind of smiling when you were telling me about this other person's experience because I never had that experience. Um, my stays were almost exclusively at Columbia University Medical System. Um, and I do not recall anyone ever even holding a stethoscope up to me. Um, and these were all purely psychiatric stays. So I, I think Anybody, anybody who is getting a thorough medical exam is, is an outlier and I'm very happy for her, but I have to say, I've never heard of it and I've never seen it at all. But let's, let's get to your diagnosis. So, um, so you're struggling with these mental health challenges that are beginning around the age of seven when, which is only a year within your uh, your, your first, at least, located tick bite. They accelerate after you um, find a bullseye rash on your neck when you're in college. They accelerate again when uh, you have an immune disrupting event uh, where you suffer a personal injury and you're, um, you're treated with steroids in part. Uh, and they just sort of continue to accelerate during the course of your adult life. Finally, at the age of 41, you get diagnosed. Tell us how that happened. That feels like a stroke of luck, honestly. Um, after I would say the age of 35, 36, um, my mental health actually started improving. It was very strange. It was out of the blue, nothing changed. No, there were no major medication switches, but after 2009, I was never 
inpatient again. So things, I was still working with a psychiatrist. I was still taking all kinds of, of medication cocktails, um, but my body really took a hit. Um, it was almost as if what was going on decided to like, oh, let's lay off the brain and let, like, let's go for the rest of it. Um, and in that, in that time period, I actually ended up, um, I ended up feeling so much better psychiatrically and so much worse physically that it became impossible to even use the subway. It became impossible to use stairs. I, I had to close my house cleaning business because I couldn't stay awake after eight o'clock at night. I, the tremors got even worse, even though I wasn't on any medications that were supposed, you know, that had that supposed side effect. Um, it was a very strange time in my life where I, I actually thought like, maybe you can get over bipolar disorder <laughs> because things just got amazingly easier. Um, I started doing mental health advocacy. I, I started planning this arc that I'm still kind of on of becoming a clinician. Um, and in the meantime, I discovered this amazing world of um, peer support within the mental health world. And uh, I did a whole lot of training and I became a certified peer specialist. Um, I think that was in 2014. And that was the same year that I, it just all fell apart in my body. Like it became, it became bed or wheelchair or walker on a good day. And it was at that point in my life where I went back to one of those two dreams that we discussed earlier in the podcast. And I went back to thinking mental health is really what I want to go into. Like I now see this light at the end of the tunnel and it's always been what I wanted to like overcome this stuff to do. And Hey, if my body isn't working, let's go for this. And so first I, I kind of, you know, made a move into the pure world. I had been already volunteering for a crisis hotline for several years at that point. Um, and that suicide prevention is something I, I could not be more passionate about anything else on earth, except for maybe Lyme disease prevention, um, because they're tied together too often. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was actually a very fulfilling time in my life as my body was just going down, down, downhill. And it was at that point where I started getting some really left field diagnoses. I had heard fibromyalgia for so long, um, so long. I, I think any female who has a mental health condition is gonna get fibromyalgia. I just think that's what happens in our society. Um, but then I started to see rheumatologists. I started to be sent to new endocrinologists, new rheumatologists, new physiatrists, and blood work was happening. And my ANA was just skyrocketing. And ANA is a marker for autoimmune diseases. And mine would skyrocket to the point where, you know, doctors were like, you need to see someone tomorrow, tomorrow, not today, tomorrow. I mean, sorry, not, not next week, tomorrow. Anyway, so, you know, that all started. I, I was diagnosed with MS. Uh, I was diagnosed with lupus. Um, I, I, I have 
since I was a child had a face that gets very, very red when I am flaring on um, Babisha. And that looks very much like lupus. And my ANA was kind of a dead giveaway, at least in these people's minds. Um, so there was treatment for that too. And uh, at the same time, I decided to go back to school. Uh, I went to Queens College and I started studying philosophy. Um, and it was really um, an interesting, I, I had heard, I had been reading all of these books by Tony Bernhardt, you know, how to have chronic illness and live well. That's, that is not the title, but we all know these books. And um, I was going to find my purpose and studying philosophy was going to make me the even better mental health professional once I got there. So that was my thinking. And um, I found this amazing professor that sent me recordings to, of her classes. I did it all from home. Um, don't remember a lick of it, but um, really got me through some dark days. And my PCP had been watching me kind of decline and decline and decline. And I had an emergent problem. I don't exactly remember what it was. She was not in her office that day. And I got to see another person in the practice. And that person in the practice just looked at me and kept looking at the computer and looked at me. And I'm, I'm sitting in a wheelchair and it had taken everything I had to get there. And she was like, have you ever been tested for Lyme disease? And I was like, why well, no, I've been tested for everything else under the sun, but not that one. Um, and she said, I really think that's something you need to do. And I knew nothing at the time. I just kind of said, oh, okay, give me the lab work, paperwork, and I'll, I'll make this happen. And because I was still seeing a psychopharmacologist nearly every week and getting blood work nearly every week or every other week, I handed it to him and I asked him to add it on. Because why make two trips to the blood lab? <laughs> that was my plan. <laughs> So Marta, as I'm sitting here kind of as a fly on the wall, listening to this conversation with you and Rich, I'm, I'm heartbroken, but I'm also just amazed by you. And for those of you who don't know, Marta was so vulnerable and so transparent and shared her story as a patient just a few weeks ago at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Tick-Borne Disease Working Group meeting. And this is an incredible platform for patients to share just how their lives have been fundamentally altered. And, and Marta did just that. And I heard her speak just after I had shared my own story. And I mean, I just, my jaw was unhinged. And it was amazing to me to hear somebody else who seemed so similar. And it also had blown my mind that we had not yet crossed paths. And so Ultimately, I was like, I have to reach out to you. I have to connect with you. This is a human that, you know, we're intended to know each other. And um, so, so I'm just amazed by your willingness to be so transparent about all of this and, you know, do what you can to help change the terrain for other patients. And something that you said really, it stuck out to me. You said that your diagnosis was a stroke of luck. And that's something that I... I think as well, it's, you know, we're one of the lucky ones and that we were able to actually figure it out because, you know, who knows how many people are really just living in the dark with this and have no idea that this is the culprit for all of their problems. Um, 
And so as crazy as it sounds, yeah, this is absolutely a stroke of luck that we were able to really get an accurate diagnosis. Um, so you, you met this doctor by chance and because your PCP was not in the office. Um, and I don't, I don't believe in coincidence. I think that that was, you know, meant to happen on your journey. And so tell me, you know, they ordered some labs. Tell me what, what testing did they order? Were they suggesting the standard Western blot or did they suggest that you look elsewhere to private, um, labs that specialize in tick-borne infections? Oh no, this was absolutely just the standard two-tier, the Western blot. That was it. Yeah. And what did your results come back like? CDC positive. Clear as day. Yep. So you truly are one of the lucky ones. So tell me when you got the CDC positive test, what happened next? Was it a clear cut path for you to get your treatment from there? Or did you continue to have to jump through hoops? I wouldn't say it was a clear cut path to getting good treatment, um, but I really did not have to jump through hoops um, because the person who had actually ordered the testing was the psychopharmacologist. Mm-hmm. Um, this individual was very connected in New York City. I, I, I now know this individual does not truly believe in Lyme disease in a, or at least chronic Lyme disease. Um, but he was able to connect me with probably the only infectious disease doctor in New York city that was willing to treat me for six months. Um, I, I knew nothing of co-infections. I knew nothing of what kind of treatment was most appropriate for me at the time, but Mm -hmm. I was treated with doxycycline for three months Mm -hmm. and I was then treated with amoxicillin for three months. Sure. So At tell that me, point, I, I got a proper doctor. Awesome. Well, we, we love to hear that. Um, so I'm curious to know when, when you finally got this answer for you, obviously you had been searching for years and years, your entire life, it seems like trying to piece this together and what was really going on within your body. I'm sure it was overwhelming. Tell me about how you were feeling. Was it relief? Was it disbelief? My heart was broken. Um, I knew enough from having worked for this family in high school. I, I knew, I, I knew I was in trouble. Yeah. Now, did you end up reaching out to them and connecting with them and utilizing them to help, you know, write a page of your survival guide for this? Cause you knew someone firsthand who had lived it. I very much attempted, mm-hmm. um, but these, the, the parents were, were significantly older mm-hmm. at the time and the children really didn't remember much about their treatment and their treatment had been successful for both of them. And so they had gone on to live lives away from this community. So mm-hmm. no, I really didn't know what I was doing or where to look or who to call. And at the time I had been so cognitively impaired for at least two years. Um, And I was also so visually impaired. There was no going on the internet. There was no going on Facebook. There was no joining groups. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. I was too acutely ill 
to do any of that. And I was primarily on my own as my mother lived many hours away and, you know, as working full time. So I was basically running on 50% cognition, if that, and I was pretty much doing it myself. So it, it I just ended up getting lucky and I can, I can explain what happened, what I mean by that. Um, yeah. So um, I have a very dear friend who actually just retired two days ago from Spalding uh, Rehabilitation Hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, this actually was my first employer out of college. Um, he had, he was running a restaurant with his partner and uh, in Boston when I had gotten out of college and we'd remained friends. And I had mentioned this diagnosis to him and he said, we have a clinic here. We have a clinic, it's called the Dean Center. And let's get you on the application list. Let's do this. And, you know, it took quite a few months for that to happen. But once it did, I finally heard the term LLMD. I had never heard that term before. I thought everybody went to an infectious disease doctor. Right. Um, who, you know, could not explain my like drenching sweats every single night. You know, well, that's not a Lyme symptom. Mm -hmm. well, what is it? <laughs> um, so I, I, I got a, a slot in the Dean Center and they do have requirements that you are working, you know, with somebody who is educated about Lyme disease outside of the clinic. And that's where things started to really fall into place as far as understanding what, what my options were beyond yeah. some doxycycline pills. So tell us after, after those doxycycline pills, what was your next line of defense? Um, after I left the infectious disease doctor and once I got into the Spalding rehabilitation program, the, the Dean center, um, I started seeing, uh, my first Lyme literate doctor and, um, immediately on my first visit, he said, you have babesiosis. I am predicting you have at least two strains and you shouldn't be shaking like that. And let's change course here. And I, I cannot remember, you know, what I was treated with initially, but at the time between the doctor that was treating me at the Dean Center um, and the Dean Center did amazing things for me. I, I had brain scans. I had eye scans to try to figure out why I was legally blind. Um, they figured out that I probably had uh, CIDP. Um, I had severe neuropathy. I had no ability to wear pants. Uh, shoes were like a, a bonus day when I could get a flip-flop on. Um, so between my first, you know, true LLMD and the doctor that was treating me at the Dean Center, they both decided that I was really just too weak at that point to start a really hardcore protocol. Um, and so the work then, you know, I think I started a little bit of treatment for the Babisha just to, to stop the fevers and to stop, you know, the level of night sweats. Um, but I was really so fragile at that point that I, I don't think anybody thought that I could handle a Herx, a yeah. really big Herx. So we worked on getting IVIG approved and 
I am also very fortunate in this regard because I know that others fight for it and fight and fight and fight. Um, my case was so clear cut uh, that I, I just had a couple biopsies and I had the EMG testing and it got approved fairly quickly. Wow. Um, I, you know, that is not to say that the copays were at all affordable and that it wasn't, you know, problematic in other ways, but to have access to that therapy, I know that I am like one in a zillion and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. So that started in December of 2016. I would say by January or February, after a couple cycles of it, um, I could stay awake for more than an hour at a time. Mm -hmm. um, I was beginning to be able to express myself with words a little bit, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I could say water. I could say, I could say the basic kind of things that I needed to say again. Yeah. Um, it certainly didn't change the pain level I was in or anything like that, but it got me to this point where I, I think people were, were very concerned that I might not live yeah. before the IVIG really, you know, did its thing. Yeah. Um, after that, uh, we did start IV antibiotics. So I want to take a step back really quickly because for those of us who are in the Lyme community, most of us have an understanding of what IVIG is. So how would you describe it kind of in a nutshell for someone who may be listening, who's not familiar? Uh, so I, I'm not a, I'm not a medical person at all, but um, IVIG is IV immunoglobin. And um, it is one of the immune factors that we all make. And um, the medication known as immunoglobin is made from donations. Each bottle I believe is made from the donations of 200 different people. So mm -hmm. I think the idea is that you are getting a diverse um, set of, of immune help, basically, yeah. from other people. Um, it is a very hard drug to tolerate. Um, it can cause a lot of side effects, especially in the beginning. Uh, but I really credit it from taking me from somebody who was, you know, really starting to have discussions about palliative care to somebody that was like willing to start to fight. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, IVIG was kind of like your new lease on life. Yes. It, it was your second wind. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that was a part of your path because it sounds like it was an essential part of your healing or, and as you're continuing to heal. And then you started to mention that you started IV antibiotics. So walk us through what that looked like. Was that something that you were going to an infusion center or did you have a line placed and administering it at home? Uh, I had a pick line placed. Um, I was, I was administering it at home. It was, it was probably, the whole situation was probably really not safe. Um, as I was living alone and, you know, we all know that insurance companies don't pay for these things. And uh, I think that somehow my insurance company paid for one month of the kind that's easy to mix yourself. Yeah. Um, beyond that, again, I got very, very fortunate because 
um, the pharmacist who was dispensing my IVIG, I called him in tears because I couldn't afford the IV medications. And he said, listen, I can get it to you in powder vials. I can get you sterile saline to mix it in. I can get you syringes and I can get you bags. And so we had someone legally blind mixing their own medications, but I did it. (laughs) I'm glad that it worked out. Yes, I did. As risky as that sounds. $100 a month. So how much was it? $300 a month. Yeah. I think it's important to note for those who may not be familiar with what treatment costs look like for IV antibiotics. I personally had done them for about 10 months and they're, you know, not covered by insurance. And it's very seldom that someone is able to get reimbursement. And these bags are costing on average about 200 bucks a pop. And for something that someone is probably doing at least a dozen times a month, you know, it adds up. Um, and so that's why, uh, and I'll, I'll spare the tangent, but that's why this community is so passionate about advocating for, for change, because we ought to have these treatments covered because they are so essential. Um, but I'll, I'll digress now before I go off into an advocacy tangent. Cause you know, I won't be able to stop if I get started. <laughs> um, so Marta, tell us it sounds like you've tried so many different modalities for healing. So many different things have been in your tool belt. What would you say has been your biggest game changer and maybe something that you've tried that maybe didn't work so well for you, not to say that it wouldn't work well for someone else, but you didn't find it to be as successful in your personal experience. Um, Hyperthermia. Um, hyperthermia was wildly helpful for me, um, in the sense that it, um, the IV antibiotics definitely helped. Unfortunately, I found out that I was living in a, in an apartment that was just rife with mold. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found that out because it was growing out of the air conditioning unit. Um, and it turned out to be behind all the walls and under the floors and, and, I I do think that that is probably why my first round of IV antibiotics didn't end up doing the trick um, because I was unknowingly living in this environment for who knows how long. I don't know. Um, When I was at my last, you know, we all go through these, like, I'm done. I can't do anymore. I, I can't keep going. So my first one of those was when the pick line got pulled And, you know, I really had finally gotten out of the mold environment and I really wanted to continue going because I felt like I had lost all the months that I had done. Um, But the, you know, the consensus was to pull the pick line and I really thought, okay, now is when I am done. I'm, I'm done. Um, Then I, I, I heard about this hospital in Germany, um, clinic St. George, um, and I, I thought the treatment sounded just crazy. And um, I, I honestly didn't have much hope for it at all. Um, I, I would say that my mother was probably more enthusiastic about it than I was. Um, and I, I went, it was, it was a very grueling treatment. Um, 
And unfortunately, I, I also left in a wheelchair. I got there in a wheelchair and left in a wheelchair. And um, I really thought it hadn't worked at all. And about three or four weeks later, there was a shift. I was waking up with more energy. I was uh, able to think more clearly. I was, I was seeing all of these benefits and I was kind of in disbelief. And I would say two months later, I was back in physical therapy, learning how to, figuring out how to walk again, figuring mm -hmm. out how to get my muscles to work again. Um, so as far as your question, it is a double-sided sword for me because it was this wonderful experience where I felt like I made these huge gains. I also stopped being incontinent. I had been incontinent for a very long time. That's not something I mentioned before. It turns out that was seizures um, that was causing my incontinence. Um, and I also had regained almost all of my vision. I was able to read as much as I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I think I am, I am in the great minority and I, I do not ever want to say that hyperthermia is not an option to pursue if you can possibly find the money for it. But I do know others and there's a small subset of us for which hyperthermia, which only targets Lyme, I want to make that clear, um, at least at this German hospital, there are no claims that it does anything else. It, it is to target the Lyme, not the co-infections, not the viruses. Um, but for a small subset of us, it really tends to amplify, amplicate the, I'm not speaking well, sorry, um, amplify the co-infections. So by three months out, all of a sudden I'm shaking with anxiety again. I'm covered in Bart rashes again. Um, I'm having drenching night sweats again. I'm able to walk. I'm able to like hoof it to the sauna, but like I cannot stand being in my own skin at yeah. all, at all. And uh, that is when I switched and started seeing an integrative LLMD. Um, and we, we did our best to tackle kind of that amplification of, of co-infection symptoms, but I was never able to, I've never been able to go into remission of, of all of the diseases from the, from the tick bites. Um, so you're still actively treating right now. I am. I am actively treating in a way that I swore I would really never treat again. I am treating with IV again. Um, the past two years have very much been kind of uh, felt very crisis-like um, as far as my cognition, as far as my mood. Um, last fall, um, not surprisingly, after getting a steroid epidural, um, <laughs> uh, I, I no longer recognize my home um, for about three or four months. Um, I no longer remembered who was alive and who was not alive in my life. And this is just a year ago, um, yeah. just a year ago. And it seems very much like in my case, and I, I think I've mentioned this to you, Megan, but I'm not sure because it's a very recent kind of epiphany on my part. Um, my case is very much like that game whack-a-mole. Yeah, um, you did tell me that. <laughs> and that's a great analogy. <laughs> In, in my case, it seems that it seems that everything needs to get hit at the same time. And if it's not getting hit at the same time, 
whatever's being, you know, ignored is just going to rear its ugly head. Yeah. And so I'm giving it another, another college go here. Mm -hmm. Give the old college try. So what, if anything, are you keeping in mind, um, different modalities that maybe you haven't already tried that you would like to potentially explore as future treatment options? Um, if there's anything, it feels, it feels a little bit like there's not too much out there that I haven't tried. I've had a lot of IV ozone. I've had a lot of vitamin therapy. I've had peptide therapy. Um, of course, acupuncture, of course, of course, the, the affordable things. Um, I've had IV laser. Uh, I have not tried disulfiram. Um, I'm very afraid of, of going there at this point. Um, I, I think I've tried pretty much every herb on the face of the earth at this point. Um, every company, every brand. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure. One of the things that does jump out at me in the middle of the night when I'm trying to figure out like what my next move might be is possibly getting, you know, intensive IV ozone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard mixed things about, you know, whether, whether that is, you know, anything long lasting or, or whether that could possibly cause more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's out there. And if it's out there and I haven't tried it, then it's still on the table as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find amazing relief from infrared sauna use. I find amazing relief. I, I do coffee enemas every other day. Um, TMI to the whole non-Lyme world out there, but they're very helpful um, to me. Even anything that you need to do to heal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nope. There's no shame in this community. <laughs> um, I've never tried Rife. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, the other thing that's been occurring to me lately is I, I'm very, I'm very much tuned into the mind body connection. And I've, I've read all the books and I'm a true believer. And if I can get to the point where I am a practicing psychotherapist, social worker, you know, I truly believe that we have physical causes and we have trauma causes mm-hmm. and that those two those two aspects are probably driving almost all mental health issues. So I'm actually very, I'm looking into right now into the accessibility factor of me maybe doing a 15 day meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's something that I've been talking about for a couple of years. I've done a lot of five day retreats, three day retreats. Um, but I'm kind of looking at going really deep this time. So, so Marta, why don't you talk to us about uh, the beauty of this journey? What has been beautiful about this journey? What have you learned about yourself that you believe you would not have learned had you not had this experience with Lyme disease? I have learned so much. Uh, I'm not sure where to start. I recently, very recently, have learned how to ask for help. That is a huge thing for me. That is like seriously the last month. Uh, I feel like I'm making like huge leaps in therapy here. Um, so that's huge. I've I've learned that my type A ways are just um, 
they're just not serving me. They're not serving me. You know, I was speaking earlier about, you know, well, in 2015, since my body was going to rot, you know, I thought I'd use my mind and I'd get ahead and get ready for social work school by doing this. Like always it's been planning. It's been planning for the next big thing. And there's a lot of value in that, but I've been placing too much value on being concerned about tomorrow and being concerned about my next big win. Like I'm learning how to be proud of myself for every little tiny thing, like getting through this protocol, getting through today, like eating healthy food when I feel nauseous. Um, I feel like I've become a much bigger person. Um, I feel that I was very empathetic before, um, but it, it feels like it's it's kind of at a, a new level now. I'm learning boundaries. I'm learning how to say no. Um, I'm learning amazing things. And I'm also learning that there's so much goodness in the world. Um, when you ask, people come through. And that's not something I, I would have been able to say to you with a straight face five or six years ago. <laughs> and I can say that now. And I also have so much more self-confidence. I mean, it's, it's, over, it's over anything I can use, I can say with words. I mean, I, I no longer have social anxiety. I, because I've gone through all this and I've made it and I'm here and I'm not giving up. I'm not. So, I'm proud. And you should be. So, over here about to cry. So while, while Megan tears up, I have a couple of questions <laughs> to ask you because I think this is really important for folks who are on the journey. And I think it's important for you to first talk to us about how asking for help has not only been helpful to you, but it's been helpful for the other people in your life. Because one of the things I think those of you who are on the journey don't fully appreciate uh, that we who are just supporters do is that it's it's a disease that affects everyone and it's painful for all of us. And um, one of the things that's frustrating about those of us who are supporters is that we don't know always know how to help and we don't always know when to help. And when it's not being communicated to us, we're often in a position where we feel like we're hurting more than we're helping. So talk to us about how learning how to ask for help was a beautiful element of growth for you, but how it's also helped the other people in your life who love you and are suffering with, you know, on this journey with you. Um, I can give you an example from last night um, about how this also benefits other people. Um, I'm in a fairly new city. Um, I moved here two years ago to start school. Uh, then a pandemic hit and I'm I'm extremely immune compromised and I haven't had the chance to make a lot of connections in this new city, but the few that I've made have just blown me away. And I, I had a neighbor when I lived in my first neighborhood in Baltimore city. And this, this person at last night was very hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, my protocol has just gotten upped yet again yesterday. And I was just having one of those moments where I could not, I couldn't fathom 
hooking up to that IV at an even higher dose, I just couldn't fathom the few hours of nausea that I know are going to come. And I called this person and which again is, is not something I would have been able to do even a month and a half ago, but I called this person and they said, I need three things. I, I started the laundry two days ago and I haven't been able to get it upstairs. And I, I need you to come and make my bed. And I also need you to help make some food for tonight and for tomorrow morning. And I also need to cry. I just need to cry so that I can do tomorrow. And this person came over and this person has been there for me before, but this person said the most beautiful thing to me last night that, you know, I still have trouble asking for these things. I still, this is still hard for me. And this person arrived and, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, 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 I, I need all this help. This is so hard. And this person said, you understand that you've made my day. You've made my day. Like you never let me help you. You never ask me for anything. And I watch you walking around, trying to be a stud, walk your dog, do all these things that like are clearly quite a challenge for you right now. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for you to ask me and you've made my day. And I, I, I lost it. Like I just lost it. I started sobbing and I was like, I am just one of the luckiest humans on the face of the earth. And then 10 minutes later, my neighbor down the street texted me, hey, do you need more white rice? I know you're having trouble eating. Can I bring you some white rice? And I was like, oh, this deluge of love. And she also has mentioned to me, this neighbor that like, it's really nice to help you out. Like most people just don't let anybody help them. and. I don't know, it's really making my day. And I, I'm hearing this twice in one day from two people. So I know that when I volunteer and um, I, I, I volunteer for a harm reduction uh, coalition here in Baltimore, um, we, we pack safer, safer drug usage kits. And um, it took me a lot of months to convince them to let me do it out of my house because their stairs are just too many for me to climb. And I can tell you that they finally agreed. I think it was two weeks ago and I, I had IVIG and my nurse was there and she was like, you've never seemed so happy as you do here doing, doing this volunteering. And so I think that this is part of the human condition. We really want to give as much as we want to get. We want that. We need that. Like that's part of our makeup and that's part of, it's something that society seems to forget about on the regular. But I, I think if we all look around and notice, like that's what makes life like juicy. That's what makes life rich. It's that connection. It's that like, let me help you and let me let you help me. Like we can do, we can do this. So Marta, let's let's pause there for a second because the the pattern I see developing here is that Lyme disease separated your mind from your body, separated you from the people who wanted to love you, and separated you from the community of people you wanted to help. And that 
when you got to a place where you were healing and your mind and your body were reunited and reconnected and you and the people who loved you reconnected and you and the people you wanted to love reconnected, that's when you were able to begin healing. So tell me about what your reaction is to the way that Lyme disease is a disease that just, I guess, disconnects or separates us from loving ourselves, loving the people who are close to us, and loving the world. Oh, there's so many, there's so many factors there. Um, part of it is, is that we have this stigma that, you know, a lot of us are walking around with a disease that many people don't believe exists. Um, so that is one very great way in which it separates us from other people. Um, I, I'm sure that every patient can identify with somebody asking them, so when does this treatment end? As in, when does the madness end? And my answer is always, when I feel better. Um, but there's, you know, that is one thing that separates us. There is also this idea that we've all joined, we've all joined the crazy club on purpose. Like we've joined this community, you know, that, that defies everything that, you know, the infectious disease society is saying, and that we, we kind of somehow like this life. We kind of choose this life. I, I feel that from people in my life, certain, thankfully not from anyone in my family, but I felt that from other people in my life. Um, but on the flip side, once you do let people in on what you are going through, what you, when you do let them see what I had thus far really kept hidden, I, I would say the first three years after my diagnosis, like there were about two people that were allowed to see me the way that I was living. I was not willing to let people see me crawling around my apartment or using a walker or any mobility aid. I was not letting people see those days when I was so wrapped in pain that I could not breathe. I wasn't letting people see that. There was a shame. Um, there was a shame in that it, on my part. And I found that now that I have let a very small number of people, but now that I have let people actually see, like, I, I call it kind of bearing witness. And I, I would say that that is what this friend did for me last night. You know, I, I really don't normally think it's like a very hospitable thing to do to invite people over to watch you kind of wretch. <laughs> but that moment of my vulnerability like I know now that this friendship I have with this person is now at such a different level than it would have ever been before. Had I said, no, you need to leave right now that you made my bed. You need to leave now because bad things are going to happen. Um, so that has connected me, but it is the Lyme community itself that is so embracing and so beautiful. Um, I'm not a big social media person, uh, mostly because I, I simply haven't had the use of my eyes or the use of my attention for a very long time. But the minute I got on Instagram and the minute I started connecting with people, everybody welcomes you with open arms, everybody. 
I've never heard, I've never seen a bad comment. I've never seen any of it. We all are fully supporting every other person who's going through this because we know the isolation. We know, we know the fear. We know the, honestly, let's, let's be honest. There is a desperation in this disease. There's no known cure for anybody in our situations you know, the best that the most realistic thing that we can hope for is a long lasting remission. And hopefully that remission will be forever. Let's hope. Let's keep thinking that way. But this is a really hard thing to live with. This it is Martha, but but let's pause that for a second, because because we're talking about healing now, right? And when you were separated from your mind, and you were separated from the people that loved you, and you were separated from a community, you couldn't heal. You are not in a position where you could emotionally or physically heal. And once you got past the, that, that disconnect and you, and you, and you, you know, that part of your central nervous system that's imprinted with a need to connect with other people, you heal, right? Now, you may not be where you want to be, and you, I know you wish that you weren't going to have to take a second college try but let's talk about let's talk about what you have found out about yourself right because from the very beginning of your life you knew that you were stubborn no matter what surfaced in your life and what barrier or wall was put up before you you learned to pivot and now you're doing it again right and that's the kind of thing that i think we have to emphasize in this community because in order to be able to heal from lyme disease at least the patterns that we're seeing here you have to have that grit that you have and that personality that you have and that that willingness to make a change when something's not working so talk about how you discovered in yourself in your adult life what you knew about yourself as a young child which was that you were stubborn and that you were willing to pivot Anytime something got in your in the way of you achieving your goal, I would say this experience has has taken that to the power of like two thousand. Um, I now realize just I I think when you have a mental health diagnosis um, that that's such a biggie. Like I had, uh, you very much feel like you are damaged. You very much feel like you are not worthy and you are not as good as other people. I now know that I am beyond the kind of strong that I ever aspired to be. Like I now know that I can handle just about anything. And that kind of that kind of feeling in your heart where you know I'm having maybe a challenging day Maybe I'm, I'm scared of, of this, that, or the other. And just to think back, wow, I have gotten through so many challenges and I've done it pretty gracefully um, for the most part. I'm, I'm incredibly proud and that, that is most definitely a gift that I've been given through this experience. I know that I would not have the self empathy and the self love because those are different things and i certainly wouldn't have the self confidence that i have now without having gone through this journey there's no way 
So Marta, let me ask you the very last question we ask every one of our guests on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And if God forbid, after this uh, podcast ended, your mom, who's been such a supportive force in your life, came walking into your room and showed you that she was being bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? I would first go get a Ziploc bag and a moistened cotton ball and an alcohol wipe and a pair of tweezers. And I would remove that tick for my mother um, at the very base of where it's attached. And I would put it in said bag with the moistened cotton ball and I would Ziploc that bag up and I would then clean the area where she found the bite, I would photograph everything before removing the tick and after removing the tick. And I would send her to go see an LLMD immediately, immediately, not a PCP, not an infectious disease doctor, not an urgent care doctor, an LLMD to do it right from the beginning. And that test would be immediately sent to there are any number of, of companies and state jurisdictions that will test the tick for you. Um, Igenix is one. I don't know a whole bunch of the other ones off the top of my head, but that would be happening as well because we all know it's cheaper and more effective to test the tick than the person. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Marta Edmiston. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Marta, please visit her Instagram page at Marta Edmiston. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you for listening.